just knowing that you have value and you deserve to be there will be one thing. So always keep it in the back of your head. That's going to take a lot of work. And you're going to have to prove yourself. Nothing is given in this field. But there's a way for you to get there. And just keeping hope alive, keeping your faith, and just understanding that you have a value and a reason to be there. Support for this podcast is brought to you by the Chef J-Rob Experience, LLC. Giving you restaurant-quality food with an amazing experience. His private chef services include catering for baby and bridal showers, parties, small events, private dinners, and meal prep services. More information can be found on his website at www.chefjrob.com. Hello, everybody. This is the M3 Conversation, and I'm Devontae Brown. And today, we'll be having a talk with Dr. Rudolph Davis. So Rudy is from Birmingham, Alabama, and a 2010 graduate from Minor High School. After graduation, he attended Auburn University, where he graduated in 2014 with a degree in biomedical sciences. He then went on to University of Miami, where he obtained a doctorate of medicine and a master of public health. Rudy now resides in Atlanta, heading to the San Fran area to complete his residency with Stanford in anesthesiology. And today, we'll be discussing his career as a medical physician. We appreciate you joining us today, Rudy. Thank you for having me. It's a pretty important day in the journey, I guess. We're recording this on July 1st. So for people in the medical field, they know this is the day when all the new interns start. I'm one of those interns. So today, I completed my first day of actually practicing as a physician. Nice. That's cool, man. That's an that's, uh, interesting day to get started on this interview. So... um you know, growing up as a kid, you know, going up through elementary school, middle school, high school, uh, is becoming a doctor what you always wanted to do? For the most part. I mean, like, I feel like from the age of about five, you know, as a kid, you dress up as a fireman, you dress up as a police officer. I dressed up as a doctor and I always knew that that's what I wanted to be. And I've kind of never looked back. I never had any other plan Bs, plan Cs. I thought maybe there were some other things I would like to do. You know, every kid playing sports thinks they're going to the league one day. But I knew from pretty early age that I wanted to be a doctor. So, you know, going through that, you know, you already knew that you wanted to be a doctor as a kid. So uh, I guess from kind of high school down, uh, did you participate in any kind of programs or uh, any kind of uh, uh, different developmental things that got you pushed forward into the direction of becoming a doctor or... I did, mostly in high school more so than elementary and middle school. So I didn't have any physicians in my family or, for that matter, anyone to go to college, really. So I didn't have, like, the family friend where you can go, like, hang out at their office. But being from Birmingham, Alabama, we actually had a great program called the Kids and Jobs Program where basically for 10 weeks during the summer, I was placed with an African-American female physician. I got to do some office work with her, got to help her do physical exams. And my first time actually just experienced what it's actually like on a day-to-day for a relatively short period of time, 10 weeks. But I got to see that during high school. And then I was always involved in different science clubs, from Science Olympiad to some of the robotics clubs. And knew I always had a natural love for science because it was one of those things that was just interesting to me. You know, so many things going on around you in the world and just being able to understand those a little bit better was one of the coolest things to me personally. So I got involved in things like that in high school. And then moving into college, I did a few internships, 
one of those being called SMDEP, which is the Summer Milk and Dental Education Program. It's put on by the American Association of Medical Colleges, where basically about, I think, 12 different sites across the country. They take freshmen and sophomores in college and basically put them through baby med school, as they call it, where you may take one or two classes that are not taught at the medical school level, but they're taught with academic rigor from faculty from these medical schools. And you also get to shadow physicians in different fields from surgery to obstetrics and gynecology to anesthesiology. And you kind of just live that life on a different scale of what you're doing from undergrad where you're around a lot of different people doing a lot of different things. I also did a little research. I did one program called Bridging the Gaps in Southern California at the University of Southern California. And basically we're just doing research out there. One of the things that a lot of people don't know really in, the, in medicine is that you're trained to be a scientist and a clinician. And that's not the same for a lot of other fields, which are more practical. We have to learn a lot about the embryology and the histology or all the root sciences of a lot of different functions of the body, but also learn how to act- actively practice medicine on patients and prescribe medications, assess physical exam findings, integrate all of that back to the science that we learn, all to provide a clinical management for one of our patients. So. So, okay, and you stepped through a lot of your involvement, you know, from high school to college. So let's kind of back up a little bit. Um, how did you decide on attending Auburn over any of the other schools that you applied to? So it was actually kind of one of those early decisions where I knew pretty early I was going to Auburn. One of the few people in my family that actually went to college, had went to Auburn. He took me to a football game when I was in about 10th grade. And I just fell in love with the campus. I fell in love with the people. It was two hours away from home. It would be my first time leaving home, so I'm not sure how, how far away I wanted to go. I was pretty close to my family, my mom and my brother specifically. So that fed into the decision. But I was also a pretty smart kid, so I applied to a lot of places. You get Tilbury guidance counselor that you should apply to maybe 10 to 15 places. I probably applied to over 30 or 40 just because I started getting those admission letters and realizing that you know, all the hard work I put in from the time I was in kindergarten to the time I, I was in about 11th grade started to pay off. All those test scores and all those GPAs and all those nights of studying and putting packets together for history classes and writing essays in English actually started to pay off. And actually was ultimately rewarded with a Bill Gates scholarship, which even expanded my search further because I knew I'd go anywhere and not have to pay back any of my undergraduate education for the most part. But I just fell in on Auburn because of the hometown feel. I'm from Alabama, and like I said, I just fell in love with it when I was 16 years old and never thought about going anywhere else, really. All right, Rudy, so, and you talked a little bit about how you got to Auburn and how you made that decision. So tell us a little bit about the pre-med life and uh, what, you went through, what you went through at your time in Auburn. So I think one of the most important things that people need to hear for a forum like this especially when you're talking to people that are in high school or younger or even early on in college, that you kind of have to hit the ground running if you want to do something like pre-med. Just being honest, I know for myself personally, I was blessed to have had ample AP credits, so I didn't have to take too many heavy courses earlier on in my college career. But to graduate in four years with a degree in biomedical sciences like I did, basically every semester you're taking two to three intensive science courses your organic chemistry is your biochemistry is your physics that you have to take in order to sit for the MCAT exam or the Melville College admissions test. And a lot of people kind of come to college and 
they kind of lose focus a little bit. It's their first time away from home, first time not having a curfew or a bedtime for the most part, and the first time where there's no one asking you, did you go to class today? Did you study? Where, where's your report card? Where's that progress report? So I think it'd be pretty good for anyone that's thinking about going into any pre-health field is just to know that you have to hit the ground running early on in college. You don't want to be getting C's or D's early on because you, by the time you get to the end of your process and you say you want to sit down and take an admissions test for a professional school, all those classes that you took early on are going to be the ones that are you're expected to know for those admission tests. And all the grades from those classes are the same classes that they look at when you apply for the medical school. All right. So, you know, you talked about hitting the ground running. So I know you can't make those mistakes early on and kind of miss out on some of those easier classes. You want to make sure you're doing the best you can to make sure your GPA is where it needs to be. So is there kind of a, a final cutoff? You know, if you don't have above a three five, there's no way you get into med school or are there other opportunities to kind of make up for uh, a, a lack in GPA? So there's never a true cutoff. For instance, I know when I went to medical school, my GPA was about 3.5. The average for my income in medical school class was about 3.7. But I know people in my class that had 4.0s throughout college, graduated in three years. I know some people that had 3.0s. And there are some people that actually had to go and get a master's or a post back and either medical sciences or applied anatomy or physiology or something of that nature where you basically do either a one or two year program to take over some of the other classes that you took early on in your college career or to just improve upon your grades. So say I have one friend now who's in medical school who finished with about 2728, but he did one year's master's, got 4.0, so he buckled down, improved his test scores and then applied again. And now he's a physician. So there are some trade-offs, but I know from my path personally, I knew I couldn't really mess up early on because I knew I wanted to go straight through from undergrad, straight to medical school. It's a very long journey. So there's never a true cutoff, but it is advantageous to kind of get it right the first time, you know? All right. And, and you talked about going straight, you know, from undergrad to med school. So let's make that transition. Um, how did you go about selecting Miami? Was it similar to uh, the process of getting into your undergrad program? And uh, we'll, we'll dive into a little bit more about your time in Miami later. No, actually, it was totally different. I know for a lot of people, they do the same typical thing where you go on a college tour, you send your applications. But essentially, you can send the application to the University of Alaska right now, and they'll look at your academic file, and they'll either approve or deny you based on that. But for medical school, it's a little bit different. So... You have to take your MK exam and you have your GPA, and those are two of the bigger parts of your application. But you also have a system called AMCAS, which basically all of the college, all the medical colleges, at least MD medical colleges in the, in the U.S. use, where you basically fill out one long, about 14, 15 page application with all of your experiences from high school, all of your experiences from undergrad, all of the grades you've made in each course recommendation letters, a personal statement, your MCAT scores. And you send all of this off at the same time. And you can apply to basically as many schools as you want in the nation. It's kind of like a screener application, basically. I know some colleges have the common application, which is kind of similar. But it's something like that where you can apply to all these schools. And after you send out all those, you get what's called a secondary application. 
And this is basically where each school individually can ask you specific questions. So they want to ask you about more of your, I guess, past experiences and how you've grown from them. Have you ever had to face adversity in your life? I know a common question is like, what does diversity mean to you? What are your non-academic interests? Things of that nature. Each school is unique in trying to build their own culture. So they have different weights or importances on certain questions that they like to see in their incoming class. So that's the second stage. And after you complete the secondaries, then you will be invited or not invited at all for an interview. And that's probably the biggest difference between the undergraduate experience and the experience of going to mostly any professional school where you have an on-campus interview where you come in the day before to whatever city you're going to be in. You get a tour of the hospital. They explain their academic curriculum. Sometimes they may actually give you a mock class or a simulation of some nature. And after you interview, then you wait. And the waiting can be anywhere from as short as a week or two weeks. So some programs announce all of their acceptees, denied people, or the wait list on the exact same day in the spring. And this is from people that interview basically all the way from September, October, all the way through March, all finding out on the same day in April or so. So that's like a big rush in, in itself, you know, everybody kind of figuring all that stuff out at the same time. Um, so jump into a little bit about uh, your experience as a grad student in Miami, you know, talk a little bit about how the class structure was, how similar or how similar, um, you know, your labs were, your classes were, your class time, as far as lectures versus training versus, you know, all of the things that you did in grad school versus what you did in undergrad. So one of the unique things about med school is that it's a lot more intensive than undergrad, but you also have a lot of different types of experiences where you're not always in the classroom. So general method currently is that for your first two years you're more so classroom based with a little bit of practical work in your second two years you're mostly hospital or clinic based with a little bit of classroom work and over this entire time you, you do take two board exams which everyone has to take to be certified as a physician in the united states but for the first year i kind of have a little bit of an easier transition i did what's called the mdmph at the university of miami which is a four-year program and my first summer, so I graduated in May from Auburn University in 2014. I started that June, about four or five weeks later. And my first few classes were MPH classes. So these are master levels classes in public health. So things like biostatistics, epidemiology, overview of what public health is, global health. And these classes are taught at kind of a different level than your medical school classes. So it kind of gave me time to adjust to Miami. You know, I was from Alabama. Miami is about 12 hours from Birmingham. So I didn't know anyone when I initially moved there. So you get to, you get a little time to adjust to where you have time to find the post office, find your grocery store, go out, see the beaches, enjoy your time a little bit before med school actually really kicks in. Because med school is one of the most intensive programs out there just because of the amount of information you have to learn in four years. And then you get to the end and realize that you still haven't learned everything you need to know. When those first two years... You transition to the classes where you're taking a lot of basic science classes and also classes based on the different organ systems in the body. So, for example, during my first year, we had a class on cardiology, which is basically everything the heart affects in your body and the vasculature that supports it, your bloodstream, your blood system. We had a class on neurology, basically all the nerves, your brain, your eyes, your vision. 
And then we also had classes on things like anatomy, where we were actually in cadaver lab, actually opening bodies and identifying literally every single part of the human body at one time or another. And this entire time, we also have clinical skills classes. So learning how to ask good questions, learning how to show empathy, learning how to properly do a physical exam. And also just learning about things that happen around medicine, learning sometimes about health insurance, sometimes about diversity and how it could be important, cultural competence. So were there any any big learnings coming out of med school? And, and I guess uh, you could talk about that uh, coming out of undergrad as well. Were there any big failures that you had or things that you had to learn from that you took with you, you know, transitioning to the next step? I think one of the biggest things I learned is that incrementally you can do almost anything. And what I mean by that is that if you can set up a plan, I'm a big planner in my personal life, but if you can set up a plan, say I'm going to work at this a little bit day by day, you can accomplish great things. I knew coming to med school, everyone talks about how hard it is and how much you have to study. But if you just say every day, I may be in class for six hours a day, I'll go to the gym for about an hour. And I say I'll just stay for three hours at night, three or four hours. And granted, I know in undergrad, I was definitely one of those people that was a little bit more gifted than some others. I just knew that person where I could cram for a test the weekend before and do well. But I know in medical school, it's just so much material that if you don't study it on a very incremental basis, you get behind and you can definitely lose yourself. Like, granted, 95% of people that start med school finish, but there are still five people, which is about one in 20, that either don't finish on time or don't finish at all for one reason or another. I guess as far as failures, I really can't say I had too many failures, I guess. One thing I can say is that I really had to be more introspective with my life during this time. It's one of the fewer times where you have a lot more choices. And as an adult and growing, you start to realize what you really want instead of what people want for you. I know for a long time I thought I wanted to be like an orthopedic surgeon or something like that. But it was really kind of one of those things where people would see me. They'll say, you're tall. You play sports. You should be an orthopedic surgeon. It was something I really tried to make myself love, but I really never actually really appreciated it once I actually got the chance to do it. And I'm grateful for my time of growth there. And it's not like I actually like tried my hardest to be an orthopedic surgeon and I just ended up in anesthesia. I actually really enjoyed the field of anesthesia and realized that this is something I can see myself doing the rest of my career and not getting burned out. So, you know, we talked a little bit about your struggles. Um, what would you say, you know, practicing as a physician and learning in med school, what would you say was your favorite part about going to your to your your trainings or, you know, practicing as a physician every day? Uh, I probably can't say just one thing. I probably say two. So one, you get to actually change stuff in people's lives. Like like I said, today's my first day of actually practicing on my well, I guess I'm not practicing independently. I'm in the residency program and we can talk about about that a little bit later. But today was the first time of me actually being one of the doctors in the hospital and actually when I put stuff into a computer or when I talk to a nurse and order a medication, fluids, something actually happens. And granted, I still have supervision now because I'm very early on in my career, but it actually does feel good to know that someone's in some kind of pain or going through some type of ailment because unlike most other places or most other careers, no one wants to be in the hospital. Some kids may like school, they may love their teacher. Some people that love their doctor probably never want to see him again because they have this horrible condition that they have to continue to continue to see someone to treat. And the other part that I really like about the career is that every day can be learning something new and expanding your knowledge in something that you really care about that's important to someone else and just getting the right answer sometimes, you know. 
I was a pretty good test taker all my life, and having to wait, I don't know, two, three, four, six weeks to get your scores back is always kind of nerve-wracking to me. But sometimes when you can send in for a laboratory, you, have, you suspect that someone has this condition, you can find out through an X-ray or CT scan in 30 minutes what's going on with this person and actively start making their life better within an hour or two. Nice. Okay, and and you talked about uh you know you're currently in the residency program. So well, let's talk a little bit about how you transition from the med school of Miami to you doing your residency program now. All right, so I just completed fourth year of medical school in May, so about six weeks ago. But about this time last year, I was gearing up for the interview and residency process. Again, sort of similar to medical school process, but a little bit better. Because now these people are actually offering you jobs. And at this point in time, you're actually getting paid. So that's always a plus. So the way the residency process kind of works is, at the end of your third year, you kind of pick whatever specialty you want to go into. Most people apply to one specialty, whether that be pediatrics, internal medicine, obstetrics and gynecology, neurosurgery, anesthesiology. But you can pick two if you want to. And you basically send out, again, kind of similar to when I was in undergrad, you go through another application process called ERAS, and you send out applications to all the programs you would like to apply to. And these are programs that offer your field, and they also are maybe more academically prestigious if you want to go to a good training program, or they train at a certain hospital, or this is in a certain location where your family may be, or you just want to change the scenery. So, I know for myself personally, I applied to about 30 anesthesia programs. And anesthesia is one of the fields that actually has a preliminary year component. So, for instance, this year, I won't be doing any anesthesia at all. I'll actually be working as an internal medicine physician for a year through the Morehouse School of Medicine. But for anesthesia, you have to do that. Basically, to kind of bear your medical knowledge before you actually get specialized into one field or another. The same thing is true for certain surgical fields and things like radiology, where you're doing something very technical, but you still have to have a good understanding of being a physician. Okay. So, uh, Rudy, you know, you talked a little bit about the statistics of how many people complete, you know, you know the, the med school program and make it to the next step of uh, being in residency. Um, can, you, can you share with us a little bit uh, about the importance of African-Americans in healthcare? I know one thing that's important to me, just personally, is just kind of mentorship. I know personally, I didn't know any black doctors growing up, just from where I grew up at. I went to public high school, so it wasn't like I was from the best part of Birmingham or anything. I grew up in the Forestdale area. Not the most affluent area, but we just didn't have those connections in our lives, so you just don't see those people in your community. And that's one very important thing, is just actually seeing people that look like you doing things you want to do. And granted, there's not true sort of nepotism to it, but just being able to ask questions to someone and say, like, hey, how'd you get to where you are right now? I think what you're doing is awesome, and I'd like to be somewhere close to where you are. Can you help me out? Can you mentor me? I know that would be one thing that's important for any young person that would like to go into medicine and do is just find someone in the field at all, whether they're a pediatrician and you hate children or they're a geriatrician and you don't want to work with adults. But just find someone in the field of medicine, anywhere along the path, whether it be someone in college, someone in medical school, someone in residency, or someone actively practicing medicine. Just find someone that's ahead of you to actively help you 
go through this process because granted, I know I'm kind of glazing over the process in this interview, but it's a very long extended process. Like once, once I finished medical school about a month and a half ago, I've been in school continuously since the age of five, basically just to get to that goal. And throughout that time, a lot of hardships happen in your life. Some of your family may pass away. Different things happen. You need to know that just stay on that path. There are a lot of milestones you have to meet. Just to meet all those application deadlines. Just take the ACT on time, the MCAT on time, your milk school board exams on time. Just know how much shadowing you need during your undergrad career just to make it to medical school. And then once you get into medical school, how much shadowing you need to know what field you want to go into once the next field, once the next time comes around. It's just a very extended process. And it's easy to get lost in one step or another. And next thing you know, you're out of the loop. And these things kind of happen on yearly basis. So it's not like college where if you miss a deadline, you can take the class next semester. Oftentimes in medical school or in the residency process, if you miss a deadline, you're out of the entire process for an entire year. So I say that one of the most important things is getting mentorship, and that's for anyone that's this. I know specifically for African Americans, we make up over 10, 12 percent of the population, but I know we're very underrepresented in medicine. We call underrepresented minorities. I know for black men in general, we're probably one of the least minorities of that group. I know one stat I always referenced was they, they, the American Association of Medical College put out a stat back in about 2014 showing that in 2014, same year that I went to medical school, there were fewer African-American men in medical school at that time than there were in 1975. And that's a four year difference. And that's very shocking when you just think about how far this country has come racially, even though it may not seem like it currently in the state of racial relations in America, but how far this country has come in 40 years and fewer African-American men actually in medical school attaining medical degrees. And it's one of those things where you actually see how it changes people's lives once you work in healthcare on a daily basis. I know for instance today, I was definitely bonding with my patients just over football and talking about how important it is for him to get his health in order at the age of 60. And granted, we started the conversation with football, but still went back to older black men taking care of themselves and actually going to see physicians seeking out help to still be there for their families at extended age. And those one of those stats always out there about how black men, black men in general kind of have some of the worst, poorest health outcomes out there as far as life expectancy. And it's kind of one of those things where in our healthcare culture, we often don't see the medical institution as a field as being beneficial to us and often don't go to the doctor at all. Often think that we're too tough or we're showing some form of weakness by saying that we have an issue. We don't take our medication. We smoke too much, drink too much, live life a little too well for too long, maybe. And that can have negative effects on your health. And once you see in the hospital that I know I can have a different conversation with this 60 year old African American man than someone else from a different community or that maybe a different sex. I know that it's important for me to be in this position working in this field and just think, encourage to see more people doing it because once you see other people in your community doing it, it actually helps them get into the field. It helps them by having more people in the faculty positions that are working these medical, medical schools or in a, at the undergraduate level in higher education. Just by having representation, you can actually build the pipeline so people can come behind you. So that's a that's a great answer. You gave some great insight to that. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about uh, what the future of healthcare holds? So it's going a lot of different ways right now. I know 
one of the kind of important things that people talk about a little more now is just actually understanding our DNA. And it's a relatively new thing. If you can think about it, it's kind of like the computer revolution for our modern world, where until about the early 2000s was the first time when the Human Genome Project actually com- was completed. It was the first time to actually sequence one person's DNA. And just for a comparison, it's 2018 right now. I know you've done an ancestry DNA test. They did that for $60. It took about, I'd be conservative and say about at least five or six billion dollars to do that in about 15 years in the early 2000s. Now it could take about, what, two weeks and $60. And now we're learning more about ourselves and moving towards personalized medicine. So probably not for our parents right now, but by the time that me and yourself are in our mid-40s, early 50s, you can probably get a genetic profile for every disease you have, whether it be a cold, a cancer, a rheumatologic issue, and they can actually find out what individual course your disease may take based off your own genetics. Because one of the things we always say in medicine is that we're practicing medicine. Every drug a physician gives you has been researched and studied on a grand, large population. And I know with yourself being an engineer, that's kind of how things go. You test it on a large number of people, but with people being so variable, the same way you react to a drug is not the same way I react to a drug. We have different systems in our bodies that some people are fast metabolizers, slow metabolizers. We have different enzymes in our liver where certain people respond amazingly to drugs and certain people don't respond at all. And even when you look at things like cancers, like certain cancers, specifically breast cancer, they have so many different markers out there on breast cancer that can tell you how this tumor will behave, what drugs will respond to it, and how you can get somebody's mother, somebody's grandmother to health. But we currently only know three of those markers. And we're just discovering the a fourth, actually, in the past a month or so. Actually came out of Tuskegee University, a researcher. I did find one of the fourth markers of breast cancer. And you can think about something that kills so many women having four markers out there when it's a complex disease that has multiple biogenetic bio markers. So probably the future of medicine, as far as the actual science goes, is going to be going more towards precision medicine so that one drug can treat one patient that we know about instead of... It's kind of like the sniper rifle approach versus the shotgun approach. And it's like, we know that the shotgun approach, it works for a lot of things. This is why when you see things like chemotherapy, where a lot of people have all these different side effects because you're actively trying to kill a rapidly dividing tumor, but also it's not good for the rest of the cells in your body. That's why things that turn over so fast, your hair, those things kind of fall out. The lining of your bowel system, you get diarrhea. That's why those things happen. But when you can get the sniper rifle approach where... We can find one drug that treats this one tumor that you have or this one drug that treats this one condition that you have. It can leave the rest of your body alone. It can help you out. As far as just the system of healthcare, it's shifting a little bit more now because we were on a certain path of trajectory to try to get healthcare for all people in this country during the Obamacare era. Even though Obamacare is still active in the United States, even though some people say they killed it, i.e. Donald Trump. But... Moving to get more resources to more people because America has one of the most expensive healthcare systems, but we don't have the most equitable healthcare system. By that, I mean that if you have good money in this country, if you get any disease, anything you can think of, you can go to the best doctors at the best hospitals in this country. You can fly your mom to Harvard, to Stanford, you can go to MD Anderson in, in Texas. But if you're an indigent person and you get a condition like cervical cancer, which can affect a young woman as young as 20 years old. You may not be able to get treatment or get treatment too late 
which for any healthcare condition will have negative impacts on your healthcare outcomes. So those are probably the two directions: just precision medicine and getting healthcare for all people in one way or another. Um, so what would be what would be some advice you would give to anybody that's thinking about pursuing you know, the medical doctor field or anything in the healthcare industry? All right, so just to personalize it a little bit, I say simply for anybody that's a young African American male, just know that you have value and that you can do it. I say one of the most important things for my upbringing is that I really never had that many detractors out there, but I've been in the mentor capacity during undergrad and during medical school, and even on some of the admission boards, where a lot of times that a lot of other people would doubt you before they even give you a chance to show that you're able to do it. Now, it won't be easy at all, but just knowing that you deserve to be there. I know personally, it was something in my, always in the back of my head where I just felt like I was going to get to some level and not be smart enough. Like, maybe I get to 12th grade and I figure out I'm an imposter. Oh, maybe I get to my med school interviews and I'll say like, oh, this kid doesn't really need to be here. Because like I said, I come from a single parent household in Birmingham, Alabama. And you walk in the same room and these children are the children of physicians, children of millionaires, children of entrepreneurs, seemingly don't have any cares in the world. And at the same time, there's always something going on in your life at one time or another. Just knowing that you have value and you deserve to be there will be one thing to always keep in the back of your head. Now, it's going to take a lot of work and you're going to have to prove yourself. Nothing is given in this field, especially if you don't, if you aren't already in the system or know someone that can help you get into the system. But there's a way for you to get there and just keeping hope alive, keeping your faith and just understanding that you have a value and a reason to be there. So, All right, Rudy. So, you know, you told us about today being the first day that all residents get put into the system. Uh, talk a little bit about your experience today and, and how your experience with the rest of the group uh, coming together on July 1st has been. All right. So I guess it's just today's first day I actually worked in the hospital as a physician, but I've been here for about two weeks now. Had to get an apartment, had to do hospital orientation, a lot of HR training and some refresher courses on common things you see in the hospital. How to work the electronic medical record. The history of the greater hospital, the type of patients that we serve here, all those different kinds of things. And just got to meet the class of my co-interns. There's about 60 of us across all programs through the Morehouse Graduate Medical Education Department. And in my program, there's about 27 of us. And one of the things I think that's been probably the most rewarding in the training process, at least these past two weeks, was just how many other people, African-American physicians I got to work with during this process. It's probably the most I've ever worked with, really. During my MDMPH program, I was the only African-American in the program out of 50 people. And now out of 60 people, it's probably about 45 African-Americans in the, in the graduate medical education through Morehouse. So that's probably one revelation. But as far as today being the first day, as with the first day of any job, it's kind of like all of those getting used to things, you know, find out where the printer is, where the, where's the bathroom. How do you actually, you know, get stuff done in the hospital? How do you dial out to call a patient's wife or to call a patient's daughter? All those kind of little hiccups that go along with the first day of any job. But you also have the added thing about this is my first day actually practicing medicine, which is a kind of important job. You know, you don't want to go in and make a mistake. So so then at about eight o'clock in the morning, I meet the new physician that we're going to be working with. So as far as our team goes, there's one attending physician that has completed all of their residency training. There's one supervising residence resident that's in their third year of training. And then there are two interns, 
myself and another intern who just finished medical school. And we, as a group, manage about anywhere from 10 to 25 patients at any given time. So we meet with the, the attending physician and basically just round, we just go around the entire hospital seeing all of our patients. We do our physical exams as a group. We make our suggestions. We talk about the plan for the day. And then we go and write our notes and make our different measures, put in for labs for the next day, get lunch somewhere across that time. And at the end of this, it's probably about nine hours later. And thankfully today was a pretty slow day. It's a Sunday, like I said, so not too much happened on the weekend. Not too many people come into the hospital. Not so many people leave the hospital. And not that many procedures get done, so people actually end up sitting over the weekend sometimes. So on Fridays, they try they kind of try to get people out of the hospital because not that much is gonna happen on the weekend. So tomorrow's gonna be Monday, which is gonna be my first day on call. On call for this rotation I'm on is actually from seven to seven. But also, I have three 24-hour shifts plus a four-hour hangover that I have to do every month. And tomorrow's my luck of the draw, my first 24-hour shift. So second day on the job, basically going to be working about a 24-hour shift plus my four hours on the next day of hangover for transition of care, where I'll basically be signing out patients to all the oncoming residents for the following day. Just about work hours. I know it's something that like people don't usually work 24-hour shifts on any kind of job. But it's kind of actually like the limit for medicine is you do 24 hours of continuous care with a four-hour transition of care period. So it's about a 28-hour shift. And it's kind of like your standard intern, your shift, no matter where you go or what field you go into. Because like I said, it's a hospital. Emergencies are going to happen. There always has to be a physician in the hospital at any given moment. But we do have caps on our work hours. So over the course of a week, you're going to work 80 hours, average over four weeks. So you can work 320 hours over a month which sounds very extreme compared to other fields, but it's actually a little bit better than what was previously in medicine. Like, there's this old joke about why residents are called residents because we actually used to live in the hospital. Yeah. They were called the house staff. So at least we get to go home now. Wow, that that's crazy. You know, um, a lot of people complain about having to work over 40 hours, but, you know, 80 hours being kind of the standard uh, work week. That's crazy. And you don't typically work 80 hours on every rotation, but some of your more intense ones, you could probably get to the 70 hour mark, but you're usually probably averaging anywhere from 50 to 60 hours a week, but it can get to the 80 hour mark. That's why you have to have that limit out there. And you have different fields that work a lot more. For instance, my program, we have 27 interns all in the same program. You go to a neurosurgery program, they may have one intern in their program. And across the entire residency, somebody has to be in the hospital at all times or on call at all times to be available because you never know what may happen. Someone may get in a car accident, crack their skull, and guess who? Well, they need a neurosurgeon. And somebody is going to have to be there to assist them in their critical time. So someone's always on call somewhere, no matter where you are in the medical structure. All right, so Rudy, thank you for that wonderful insight into medicine and, and, and shedding some light on some of the issues that you guys deal with on the day to day. Um, I learned a lot in this conversation, so I'm sure all of our listeners are, are definitely gaining a ton. And we really appreciate you being here with us today, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And I know this is through the M3 Foundation and Mentors Making Mentors. So if there's, any, if there's anybody out there looking for a mentor in medicine or just has any questions, I know like I glazed over a lot of the information. It's definitely the 30,000 foot view and not the on the ground view because there's a lot more that goes into all the steps that we went through. But 
in a limited time, you know, you can't go through everything. So if anybody would like to contact me, my email is RudolphDavis92 at gmail.com. And I'm pretty sure you can include this in the description. All righty. And thank you guys for listening. Uh, please visit the site, theM3.org, for more information or to see what we have coming up. Please subscribe to the site and contact us with your feedback. If you are listening to this via the website, please head over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. Also, visit the donate page if you'd like to make a tax-deductible charitable donation to help support our scholarships and outreach programs. You can also follow us on all social media platforms at The M3 Foundation. Again, thank you guys for listening, and we look forward to having you here next time. Here's a snippet of our next conversation. Sometimes it can be heavy work dealing with so many personalities and having so many emotional needs. In addition to having, you know, your own personal life, make sure that you put your breathing mask on first. You know, if you want to affect change in your community and on the school level, you have to be the best you can possibly be. And sometimes being the best means taking a step back and breathing.